Hi, I'm Sage. I'm here with Adam. And this week, another question. What did we miss? Yeah, we're a year almost to the day uh, recording this from our last episode, which is crazy. Yeah, yeah. We took uh, a slightly longer break than expected, but we've uh, got everything back together. We've got an interesting question, and... We've missed a bunch of stuff. Yeah, We've got a whole is, year of gaming that's happened. Life is busy. Do you have an order for your three? Uh, not not particularly, actually. Uh, I guess my first one is kind of the, in some ways, least interesting of the bunch. Uh, it's, it's a little more inside baseball, but it's kind of the return of publishers. In the past year, we've seen... A lot of things that in the past uh, would have been self-published or were self-published for a while go to some of the kind of still small, but small to medium-sized uh, publishers. Uh, so I, I'm an example of this. Dungeon World is now published by Burning Wheel HQ. Um, Magpie Games and Evil Hat have both done a lot of the same kind of things where especially small creator-owned Kickstarter successes end up going to these companies because uh, people realize what a pain it is to Seriously. deliver your books. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, people getting pulled into the larger fold, I guess, is really interesting. And, and I tried to find like examples of this on the OSR side, and there's not as much of it. Um, Lamentations kind of does that, but they very much focus on their line of supplements. Mm -hmm. uh, there's not a whole lot of kind of publishing something that isn't directly compatible with their own stuff, whereas... Uh, like Magpie publishes Undying by Paul Riddle, uh, which is utterly unrelated to anything else they do. It's not like a supplement for their own game or something. Um, and I think this is interesting. Like this is, uh, in some ways, dealing with the the debate that's been around since the Forge of indie as publishing versus indie as a style of game. And it feels like indie as a style of game was already winning, and now it's really won out. Like yeah, you think that the big rush of a whole bunch of independent publishing. Uh, and then all of those people, including yourself, were like, this is horrible. Don't do this if you don't have to do this. And so, you know, kind of the more recent stuff is saying, okay, I won't do that if I don't have to do that. I, I think that is some of it. Um, and I think part of it we learned uh, that there's there's kind of these multiple phases to things. Like the, the Forge, which is uh, background, um, this forum on the internet where a lot of kind of independent publishing got started for RPGs. Um, or this wave of independent publishing. There's there's been previous independent publishing, uh, starting with like Ron Edwards um, is the real pioneer there, working out ways to make RPGs outside of kind of the normal system at that point, um, and the the design that happened there and the publishing that happened there got intertwined so that indie both is kind of this style of games that was continued by say Vincent Baker and Luke Crane, John Harper, right. uh, all the way through Dungeon World because. Vincent Baker, uh, as well as the type of publishing where you cut out as many middlemen as possible, you uh, don't think about selling your game to some big publisher, you do it all yourself, and that means considerably more profit. So some, somebody like Vincent Baker uh, has done this thing where he, he tells the story, he started his game publishing with the money that he would have spent on supplements for other games... Uh, over a certain amount of time, I think it was like a few months, and he put that into publishing things, and since then he's never put his own money into it and just nice. made profits. And uh, they learned all these lessons about how to do that, and those got passed on, and there was still indie publishing, um, but I think we've gotten to uh, a scale of the industry to some degree and a, a scale of distribution. A lot of things are easier than they used to be. Mm -hmm. um, if you've ever tried to buy uh, a PDF copy of Dogs in the Vineyard and gone to the Unstore, which is, you know... 
not not to knock the web design to it, but it is a project that somebody like knocked out in a weekend to sell PDFs on. Um, that isn't really needed quite as much anymore. You can go straight to drive through and right. get a decent cut of the profits at least. Yeah, it's weird. Like on on the one hand, quite a lot of things are way easier, uh, and just you know we have a solution now, and everybody uses that solution. And then a whole bunch of other things we thought were going to be super easy, like. Oh, yeah, you know, I want to publish a book. I'll just upload it here, and they'll publish it, and I don't have to care. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, nobody wants the books that come out of those processes. Yeah, print-on-demand has not fulfilled what what people hoped for out of that. Uh, Though, actually, I mean, in some ways it has. uh, For Dungeon World, we constantly get people asking, why don't you do print-on-demand? Because then I can, like, print it in the local print-on-demand in Europe or whatever and save a whole bunch on shipping. But the quality of those books... For the most part, isn't there? Like you can get a decent book, but uh, now that you're attached to Luke Crane too, you are even more incentivized to produce an amazing exactly book yeah product. yeah. And uh, as we look at some of the Dungeon World stuff that's forthcoming, um, man, being part of a publisher like this is kind of great in certain ways. There's uh, a reason they exist, man. Yeah, there's a reason they exist. Especially working with uh, Luke and Burning Wheel has been fantastic, and. Uh, I think it's also kind of a shift somewhat in what we think of as game design. I mean, indie design was a way to maybe even make your career to a certain point out of indie publishing. Um, And now I think a lot of people are, uh, at least speaking for myself, more willing to take a smaller profit because this is like a side thing. Right. Uh, You know, my day job pays the bills and Dungeon World is like bonuses that I get from time to time. And if those bonuses are a bit smaller but I also don't have to do as much work, uh, that's a trade-off I'll take. Totally. So that's an interesting segue to mine, and I'm mine are kind of in chronological order. Oh, interesting. So right about when we were doing our last bits of stuff, uh, Three Forged happened. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Three Forged was relatively big. What was it, a thousand people? I was surprised by how many crazy. people it was. And there was... a. There were some some no shows, and that's you know that's kind of bound to happen in something that big. But the the games that came out of it were crazy and interesting and weird. And you should talk about what Three Forged is. Okay, yeah. So so Paul uh, uh, Sega Sega. I've always Saga? pronounced it Sega. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna pretend that you know what you're talking about. And <laughs> uh, so he he organized this thing where you built a game in three parts. Uh, and it had several really interesting pieces here. First, uh, your first part was supposed to be, you were supposed to write it really quickly, and then you passed it to Paul, and then he would anonymously send it out to somebody else. Anonymously is important because, you know, I was doing it, so I was a nobody, but but Vincent Baker was doing it, and, and Jason Morningstar was doing it, and it's like having an anonymous RPG get sent to you and... Being told, hey, congratulations, here is your second part of your Three Forged, and then you'll send it back and get shuffled, and here is your third part of your Three Forged, means that, you know, there's all sorts of really awesome ideas that are totally unattached to kind of name recognition of the person that's working on it. Which means that there are some games that came out of this process that are just super interesting ideas that got a lot of, uh, a lot of attention and they probably wouldn't have if it was, I'm going to release this game in a vacuum. It's the work of these three people you've never heard of before. Uh, congratulations, go take a look at it. 
and the community around kind of reviewing these games based on just a read is is an entirely other other deal. Like some of them were unplayable on print, but they read well. Uh, but but you know it's like takes some time to continue working on them, and it's it's weird because after this thing finished, kind of. There was a bunch of discussion for about a month, and then I don't believe I've really heard anything about it. No, I, it's interesting that you reminded me of that, because at the time, I remember thinking, like, some of these games are going to go somewhere. Um, there's a, a similar, in that it's a game design competition, Game Chef, and for a while there, Game Chef games were pretty regularly turning into reasonably successful released games. And I thought that might happen out of this, though I guess the ownership of them is a little tougher... Yeah, it's, it's work out. figuring out how to continue collaboration when you didn't really collaborate. Yeah, is is a weird kind of thing. It was. I am. I am happy that I was part of it, and it was way cool. Um, but it was just this weird, weird thing. And I hope Paul does it again uh, sometime. Yeah, and that kind of uh, one of his goals there that you kind of alluded to it was some amount of community building in that uh, it shakes up a lot of the ownership of games and who, like, the, there are games that came out of that that I think that I can see the marks of certain designers on, but I'm not sure, like, I, and I'll never know. I mean, they could tell me, but uh, especially the kind of bigger names in it deliberately didn't tell anybody, because you, you could see, uh, based on an, a number, I think it was, like, yeah. you, you got a number that identified you, so you could see which things you contributed on, or track one person's contrib- contribution to multiple games. Right. Uh, but you... Some people revealed, like, I was this number, look at all the things I touched. But uh, as far as I know, Vincent and Jason didn't. Um, and they were, I mean, those are big names when it comes to game design. Oh, totally. And it was being, like, the different pieces that you were a part of all felt really different, uh, kind of your relationship to the output game. So mm-hmm. my first game was I, I built this kind of seed of a creative idea and just enough to have, you know, something that was a game but didn't have very much else built on it. I was like, I hope that Person 2 and Person 3 add to this thing and make it interesting. My second piece was I got the seed of a game and I was like, I have to try and interpret what this first person wanted to do and kind of flesh it out a little bit. And the third one, it was like, this is basically a complete thing. Maybe I'm editing, maybe I'm... So it's, it's this weird relationship to kind of the finished product. What what three games did you touch? Can you give them, like, capsule summaries? Do you remember? I remember... So my game was this game where you were going out and crafting weapons and moving around this fantasy world, and it was very board gamey, like my, my initial push. And then the second and third people added these really cool uh, kind of map construction things where you threw dice on the table. It was... I was really happy with kind of the end end thing that came out of that, which was great. Uh, the second one and the third one, one of them was kind of a uh, post-apocalyptic uh, Lord of the Flies thing. Oh, nice. And it was super cool, and the tone was really interested and interesting, and I was really worried about touching it at all, because, like, this is a beautiful little, you know, perfect thing of a game, and I don't want to mess with it. So I tried to tried to change it a little, as little as possible. I think that was my third, the third one that I saw, because I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to edit. And then the second one was, uh, oh, maybe this, maybe that was the, the second one. Yeah, it's weird thinking about it now. Um, the last one that I looked at was this one that was into the black or out of the black or whatever that was totally 
one of the two people, yeah, that must have been my third. One of the two people that had it before was definitely thinking Firefly, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and just went hardcore on the frontier is space and cowboys and stuff. And I'm pretty sure that the other person was not thinking that. And uh, I don't know which one was, was which. But uh, there was already a clash built into it. And yeah. you had to kind of come to it and say, uh, yeah. which one? And there was, like, there was simultaneously too much mechanism and not enough mechanism. And so it was weird. And then the problem with that being the third game is I'm like, I want to finish this to the point where somebody can play it. Because the first few, I was like, I don't even care if this is playable. I'll just build something. But the third one, I'm like, oh, you know, it's hard to build something and then not play test it with people. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can't... I didn't have a group that I could be like, hey, we're going to play six hours of this RPG and just screw with it. And, you know, it's super hard. So that one, that one's the one I feel the worst about on release. Yep. Um, but I bet you most people feel that way about their third. It's like I have... No control over how this got to me, mm-hmm. and I can't do much about getting it to a finished state, and I'll just hope. That's, that's fun, the way that the constraints of the contest change how you interact with things. Totally. Uh, it was, really it cool. was a crazy contest. Uh, contest. It was a crazy thing to do. Um, but I, you know, reading all of the output games were awesome. The yeah. radio play game was yeah, insane. we played that one. That was really interesting. Uh, so the the summary of it is kind of your uh, radio actors in uh, basically Soviet Russia. I mean, like n- the serial numbers filed off, but a, a like repressive regime. And since it's a radio drama, you kind of assume a time period. Um, but the there were certain things that you couldn't do and you wanted to avoid dead air basically Mm -hmm. Uh, so there was like a sensor who if certain things happen would jump in and intercede so you're trying to kind of put on this radio drama Um, it it needed a little more action and it was in this interesting space between um, kind of uh, one night ultimate werewolf kind of party game where you know maybe somebody is trying to mess the show up Um, and not everybody knows that what the show is exactly. That that was kind of the other part. And if we were just going to sit down and pretend to be these radio actors, there wasn't enough uh, impulse. Like, yeah, you know, there wasn't a force pushing you forward. Like the idea behind the game was amazing and so amazing that it was the one that we read and said, "Oh, we want to play this thing." Mm-hmm. And then you sat down with it, and it's like, "I don't. I want to play it, but I don't know what to." I want to be in the situation of being a radio drama actor who's trying to not get killed by the censors while still like getting secret mission uh, messages through. And each one of the kind of playbooks had like constraints on things that you were trying to do. Um, Yeah, there was lots of potential, and it felt a little bit like those kind of uh, guessing games. I guess uh, Spyfall might actually be the most similar in that. It felt like everybody was trying to be on the same page, but some people were deliberately hijacking it, but you don't want to show everybody else that you're hijacking it. It was interesting. There was a lot of game there, but on the table it just kind of... And I think that's like that's a ton of the promise that came out of Three Forged was, here's a whole bunch of really awesome ideas, and with another few years of effort, or time anyways, and testing and and revision, they could turn into amazing games, but who's the person that's responsible for that? Mm -hmm. And, ah, man. Yeah, it's... uh, 
I wish that that process was still ongoing because until you talked about it, I forgot it entire it happened. Yeah, I I know I keep remembering it because somebody keeps updating the RPG Geek entry for one of mine, <laughs> and so I keep getting sent update emails. Nice. Uh, but speaking of continuous revision, uh, my second one is we're getting a lot of second editions. Yes, we are. We're getting we're getting Apocalypse World second edition, which was kickstarted sometime this last year. I can't remember when. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Warrens final printing is coming out slash did came out come out. Yep. Uh, Burning Wheels not getting really a second edition, but uh, Luke packaged up all the out of print stuff and is putting them out in the codex, which I haven't quite gotten yet. You haven't gotten yours yet? No, I'm just super sad. I got mine, and uh, I'm kind of amazed. I guess. I, I, Luke often does the thing where there's only a certain number of signed backer rewards, and I didn't manage to get one of those, but I was kind of like, well, I publish with him. He's going to sign my copy. And then it gets here, and I look at the page that should have the signature, and there's nothing there. And I'm just no. like, really, Luke? He's but busy. He's a busy, he's busy. I'll have to bring it to him in person. And, yeah, Team yeah. Covenant bothered him about, at Gen Con about it. He yeah. was like, oh, no, I'm just asking for everybody else, but where's my copy? <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll, it'll get here eventually. But, yeah, so so lots of lots of second editions, lots of revisions, lots of um, I am going to update my game because I've learned a whole bunch of stuff about it, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I think Freebooting Venus also was something that it had existed in, like, 2014 or yeah. something. And there's small snippets of this thing that that Vincent's putting out every so often. They're like, "Oh man, I want to play this." Yeah. Um, Vincent's approach to publishing things is really interesting, and that kind of goes back to the indie publishing thing. I'm I'm curious to see how the Apocalypse World Second Edition Kickstarter like comes to completion. I'm confident it will because so much of it is there. But Vincent's also such of a tinkerer, and it's a different type of publishing for him. So I'm curious to see how that turns out, and I'm curious to, to see more of the game. From what I've seen of Apocalypse World Second Edition so far, it's interesting. It, it gets to this um, topic that we actually kind of touched on before of why editions. Right. In that second edition Apocalypse World to me almost just feels like Apocalypse World revised. Like I. I'm trying to nail down what an edition is, and it doesn't quite feel like one to me. It's not as big as, like, D&D's 2 to 3, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's the weird thing, is that for, for RPG editions, um, it's like D&D and Shadowrun and maybe GURPS, and those are, those are the big ones that we can compare with. And they all do pretty big revisions between editions. Yeah. Um, but really, I mean, how much is wrong with Apocalypse World that you need to do something with, right? Yeah, not a lot, not a lot. Uh, and then uh, Coriolis just got kickstarted, and it's not really a second edition, but it's using the Mutant Year Zero mm-hmm. rules, like in this new world. So, I, Mutant Year Zero, Year Zero itself is this really interesting thing that, uh, oh man, it would have been just around when we ended last year. I had just taken a look at it, and it's that's a really interesting game. There's parts of it that look like it came straight out of Apocalypse World. It It's really interesting to see those ideas rephrased differently. Yeah, I think we, we had Apocalypse World, we had the thousand games that came out of Apocalypse World, and now we're seeing kind of this uh, third generation of, okay, I'm not going to make a straight up Apocalypse World game, but I'm going to take the ideas that came out of those things and all of this other stuff that was going on, and I'm going to build something interesting that is not immediately recognizable. Yeah, and we're still we're still seeing some of the immediately recognizable ones, um, like uh, Masks and uh, Worlds in Peril. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Oh, I just realized I was talking about those games with a friend the other night, and I confused them. Uh, <laughs> now that I mentioned that they're both separate Apocalypse World games based on superheroes in different genres, which is nice. I, I hate right. it when people try and do superheroes as one genre. Uh, but we're, we're seeing these games that don't drift that much still, um, which has been on my mind a lot, because I, I've worked on a few projects recently that maybe I'll get around to publishing that it's hard for me to find a reason to not start phrasing things as Apocalypse World moves in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's almost like rolling dice and adding a stat and comparing to a number. Like there's It's a so framework. Many, and it's you a start framework. with a framework. Yeah. Like, I feel like uh, it's tough to call them powered by the apocalypse as much anymore Like in the same way that you can't call everything that has rolling a d20 and adding a stat d20. Right. Um, it, it's almost more about the heritage you want to claim at this point. Uh, because I was looking at um, oh the indie hack this is something that's still forthcoming so I can't even say what did we miss <laughs> uh, but it's based on the black hack which we did miss only by a little bit and has been a big success uh, but it brings in I'm a little worried that it, it can be it could either be awesome because it brings in kind of indie ideas indie in the sense of style not in publishing mm-hmm. um, which could be a great mashup or it could be just kind of meh <laughs> um, but it has uh, a few things that kind of sort of look like moves, at least in the previews that have been posted. Um, and it it's just hard to talk about these things. Are these... Is that powered by the apocalypse anymore? Or has this become uh, an idea of presentation and a decent way of rolling dice that... Yeah. It's, it's like when Dominion came out, board games, and there was a billion deck builders. Mm-hmm. And now... Um, you know, there's a ton of euros that come out, a ton of, ton of board games that come out that use some kind of deck building, pool building mechanic. Yeah, and they're just deck builders at this point, or you don't even you don't even see it. It's just part of the way that you design games. Mm-hmm. It's a tool in the toolkit, mm-hmm. and oh, it's man, it's a huge influence. I think that's a really good point. Like comparing, uh, so much of Apocalypse World has started to feel to me like tools in the toolkit, not a game. It's not as much that you're making something based on Apocalypse World anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just those things have become such a toolkit that when you look to make something new, you kind of have, a, have to have a strong reason not to use that toolkit if you're right. making something. Cool. So yeah, my second one um, is... Uh, I, I wrote it down in my notes as Big Quiet D&D um, because... Fifth edition has been huge. Mike yeah. Merles actually tweeted the other day that uh, it had it was bigger than third three point five or four. Um, it is enormous, which is enormous, but it also seems quieter in a lot of ways. Like this isn't the the D twenty boom. This isn't like the uh, original D and D boom. It's it's just everywhere, uh, but in a, a quiet and fairly restrained way. They're they're not releasing a whole bunch of supplements. Mm-hmm. When they do, they're generally more on the adventure side than on the kind of uh, you know here's a whole bunch of new classes kind of thing. Um, they've done some community efforts that are interesting, but they're not quite like D twenty. It's easier to make compatible adventures, and you can even lean on their uh, IP a little bit more depending on which kind of publishing method you go through. Um, the community seems big, but it's uh, it's kind of spread everywhere, and I think that's actually a great goal for them. D and D is totally. again kind of the the every role player like it is kind of the role playing a game again, not in the sense that it's really how to phrase this. The thing that I want to say is it's not 
leading in the sense of doing something. Uh, it's not groundbreaking. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it's not. No individual part of it is that surprising or interesting, but it's this solid big game produced well and under good terms for people to add things to. It's uh, this is going to sound like fa- uh, like damning with faint pa- praise. But it, it's really amazing that they can make something that has just kind of seeped everywhere in D&D and everywhere beyond that and is, is so successful while still being so quiet. Because that means I don't think there's a bubble. It's, it's super polished. Like, that's, that's the biggest thing that I've seen about Five is you... First, there's a, there's a lot of, like, celebrity games yes. going on, right? Yeah. Because... I mean, it is the RPG, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you go outside kind of our indie indie bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's just beautifully polished. So there's not a ton of arguments. Nobody's going to say, "Oh, we're sh- we should go back to four. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, hardly anybody's going to say, "Oh, we should go back to to three five or to three. It's like this is an addition that very few people are arguing yep. is 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 a step backwards, right? Yeah, and even if it feels like a slight step backwards from what you like. Like, I feel like mm-hmm. combat isn't as interesting as 4th edition, right. which has all, like, that's a big statement to unpack because I don't necessarily <laughs> like 4th edition entirely, but at least the fights could be very interesting in certain circumstances, and this isn't as good at that, but it's close enough yeah. that, like, the, the steps backwards feel acceptable in that you're getting an overall thing that a lot more people can agree on and that is polished and it's complete and it's not growing too fast, but it's still getting... Supported, yeah, um, and, and that's it's so hard to do. Like yeah. the the D and D crowd, speaking as one of them, is super opinionated about exactly what they want out of their edition, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, if my if this thing doesn't give me encumbrance rules, then I'm I'm so out, right? Yeah, and and five just has not brought arguments like that. Yeah, five came out, people were like, oh, this is pretty good, and. It's across the board. Yeah, they've continued to say it's pretty good. And, uh, you know, my go-to used to be uh, that it was my everybody's second favorite. But I've actually met people who called me on that and are like, it is my favorite edition of D&D, which it means that technically I can't say everybody's. But <laughs> functionally, that's kind of what it, it gets at. It, like, it ends up being so close. So so the, the deal would be, like, I really like... Uh, ADD, like mm-hmm. super early editions, just because of some weird rules there. But I can't get people to play that. Yep. So I can get people to play fifth. So fifth is like they're they're close enough that fifth is by default the mm-hmm. favorite, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a weird system. Yeah, I love uh, for me go to D and D is Moldvay. I love especially just running like straight from the box Moldvay, not even going into the other adventures as like this introduction to what D and D can be, and. Uh, I explained that to a bunch of people that I play D&D with at work when we've been playing 5th edition, and uh, some of them were like, well, but we, we can kind of do all that stuff in 5th edition, and I had to get very like detailed on how, like, yeah, we can do that, but it doesn't quite encourage it quite as much, it doesn't quite support it quite as much, but functionally, yeah, they were right. Like, it does... Most of the things I wanted were at least partially there, and if I wanted to do like a real light hacking re-emphasis on top of it, I could get to pretty much where I wanted. Like, it's... Uh, aside from the fact that I, I love the old presentation, and the new polished presentation is great, but there's something to me about, like, crumbling pages and kind of wonky art. Um, wonky in a good way. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that this is, in some ways, 
one of the biggest stories, and it leads into my last point, which you actually kind of jumped ahead of me on, um, streaming and news about uh, games, like the, the kind of um, production of media artifacts related to gaming has, at least in my perception, shot up. There's mm-hmm. been way more kind of celebrity games, a lot of them on Twitch or YouTube Gaming or any other number of platforms. Um, there's been a lot more reporting. I mean, I see uh, relatively big sites like Geek and Sundry uh, run articles about games like The Quiet Year, which is The Crazy. Quiet Year is an amazing game, but it is uh, really like obscure. A thousand people knew about it when it came out, type of thing. Yeah, it, it's and it's a game about producing things in like a. It's a game about drawing a map. Like, come on. Okay, yeah. That, it's a game about drawing a map and talking about it, which is amazing. Yeah. Uh, Fall of Magic, similarly, has been getting some coverage. In that the, blows my mind. Like, yeah. it's a beautiful production, and the game is fun. But I can't imagine... Like, it's it's crazy. It's this, just this little work of art that's... Yep. Oh, man. And it really is a work of art. I mean, we, we should mention some of what Fall of Magic is. It's a game that is literally on a scroll. Um... <laughs> Like, the, the box, when it arrived, I was like, what is this? Because it's a long, skinny box with a cloth scroll on, like, a wooden rod inside, and you roll it. I, like, it's it's mind-blowing that something like that has gotten coverage. Like, even if it was a board game on a scroll, it'd be considered weird and odd yeah. and probably pretty obscure. And especially because the production of that means that there aren't that many copies? I mean, it's uh, oh, a bunch of... It's uh, Ross, right? Down in yeah. Olympia. Yeah. And um, I believe that he pretty much works with like a small shop to basically hand-produce all of these. Like, it's not that this is something where you can send off an email and say, make me a few thousand more, like we do for books. Right. Uh, and this is getting coverage on a, a pretty big site. And uh, Twitch streaming of games is huge. Role-play. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is... I've heard rumors of what their profits are like and stuff, and it is, it sounds like they're doing amazingly well, and it's, uh, it's amazing. It's amazing for gaming. It's not something that I would have predicted quite in this degree. I mean, we talked about games to stream last year, and I still felt like this wasn't quite taken off, and I think part of that is that it's not, uh, the games themselves aren't necessarily always exciting enough to stream, which sounds like a, a dig against games, but I think a lot of... Oh, man, there's just... We I, we talked about this when we were talking about streaming. Just, there's a ton of an RPG which, if you are purely in spectator mode, is, is set dressing. Mm-hmm. And then not even set dressing in front of the stage. Like, oh yeah, we have to organize this stuff behind all of the screens and... Yeah, here's some busy work that needs to get done or the game doesn't work. And if you're playing the game, it's just invisible. Mm-hmm. But if you're watching, it's like, well, that was 15 minutes of I don't care. Yeah. Um, I think that part of it is that before, uh, when I was at least thinking of streaming, I was mostly thinking of the game as being the thing that draws you to it. And I, honestly, I was a bit dismissive of like uh, Acquisitions Incorporated, the, the Penny Arcade guys playing D&D, because... Penny Arcade guys and Patra, Patrick Rothfuss and the PvP guys. Yeah, sorry, I should throw in all the people involved <laughs> there. Um, because like sometimes the games, to me, don't feel like that much of how games are actually played, especially for them. Uh, role play is often much more on like how games actually work. Yeah. But Acquisitions Incorporated, sometimes I look at it, and I'm like, well, this isn't 
really almost tables work. This is kind of weird to portray gaming this way, but the more I think about it, it's the fact that the people are the draw to a good stream, not necessarily the the game itself, is actually really understandable. Like, uh, it's celebrity poker. Exactly. I was going to make that exact comparison. I do not particularly care for poker. I, uh, you know, I, if it was just poker on the TV, I'd be unlikely to watch. But if you got like the cast of the Avengers to play poker together, I would totally watch that for the banner around the table and stuff, and yeah. I'd be interested in the poker, but it takes the people there to bring it all together. And I think that's what's happening, especially with a lot of the Twitch streams, because they get people who are Twitch streamers in their own right, who mm-hmm. know how to do a stream, to commentate on a game, to be involved in a game while commentating on it. Right. And they get them together, and it's great. And then uh, we get stuff like Stranger Things, where... That's my third thing that I was going to bring up. I was like, we we have to talk about Stranger we Things. We have to talk about Stranger Things. <laughs> <clears throat> because uh, I looked the other day at the Google Trends results for Demogorgon, and I'm sure you can predict exactly <laughs> what they look like. Right. They're the hockey stick, where it like it's flat at nothing forever, oh and then up... And to the right. Um, yeah. This is like this is serious media coverage. There's a there's a podcast that I listen to that's almost entirely video games, mm-hmm. and they are doing an RPG uh, podcast with Rob Davio uh-huh. because they're like we like playing RPGs, so go listen to this thing, and we played an RPG on basically as a radio show. Nice. But yeah, it's it's weird. There's a ton. There's a ton more kind of quiet. We're just going to play things, and Mm -hmm. things are fun, so play things. And it's a kind of crossover quiet mode. Like, quiet is important there. This isn't, like, the thing that happens from time to time where somebody thinks they can make RPGs big, and they're like, I put together a show that's going to make RPGs big. In some ways, it's a lot different than um, uh, Tabletop, which is kind of in this, but it's a bit more in the kind of, um, we're going to present the game and kind of explain it. It's a bit more of the promotion. Yeah. And I, I think that succeeds, but now we get a lot of people who are just like, I enjoy playing this game, Yeah. so I'm going to play it for an audience the same way that they do on YouTube Live or Twitch or whatever, YouTube Gaming, all these things. Um, it's, it's great to see, and it, it feels more... Uh, natural some of the time. They're not trying to show off what the game can be. They're just going to play the game and... Yeah, I love it. So beautiful. So Stranger Things. Stranger Things. So uh, this probably should be preceded by like an enormous spoiler alert. Okay, so it actually we can only spoil up to episode two. What? That's as far as I am. You're a terrible person. I know, and uh, it gets worse. But <laughs> talk about it first. Trying okay, yeah, to yeah. trying to not spoil past that point. Okay. I, I've already absorbed some spoilers because it's hard to miss them at this point. Oh, it's super hard. Uh, so Stranger Things, eight episode Netflix series. Episodes varying lengths from like 45 minutes to a little over an hour uh, because Netflix says, screw you, I don't care about seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, beautiful homage to the 80s. It's supposed to be set in 83, but really, who cares? It's like, it's how you feel, 80s. They play an adventure that didn't come out in 83. So. They, they play an adventure, they have miniatures, they have they have an Atari, and, and Cracked made this joke on YouTube about, well, if you got an Atari in 83, you wouldn't be very interested. You would want a Commodore 64. But it's really... It's about the feeling of yeah. the 80s, right? So, so it's, it's, it's a show that's supposed to feel like the 80s, and it totally does, about weird, weird things. Describing what the show 
is, is part of, uh, just even from my experience in two episodes, is my struggle to pitch one of the games I've been working on, <laughs> Stranger Things. That, that's my deep, dark secret, is that just watching two episodes already brought this game kind of back to the fore of things that I'm working on. So it's previously gone by a few names. I still haven't settled on a name. Um, the one that anybody listening to this might actually have heard of is Black Stars Rise. But uh, thanks to Luke Crane, I can't hear that name without thinking that it's going to be a game about Beyonce. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks, Luke. Uh, so that name's out, and I've gone through a few others that haven't stuck. Um, that, that game should exist. Though, that game should exist. It would actually be really cool. Uh, the, the document that I write into is called Cats Barfing to Techno, but I don't think that's going to be <laughs> the name that it gets published under. Um, but it, this game started out with... Uh, True Detective. That was actually kind of the, well, really Cthulhu. Um, So the long, strange history of this game is that uh, there's an Apocalypse World hack from kind of the early days called Tremulous, which tried to do basically Call of Cthulhu. Um, And And you don't agree with the decisions that they make. Yeah, I didn't agree with those. So I started, like, I've got to fix this. I've got to make my own. And the thing is, I'm not a huge Cthulhu person, so I kind of started drifting it more and more. And then True Detective, the first season, the only season as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> came out. And I was like, no, this, this solidifies it. Like, this is this bit of Cthulhu. It's normal people with something intruding on them. Um, and trying to make that sound interesting, the phrase for what thing is happening, yeah. where something is happening to these people... Uh, that's the thing with Stranger Things that you're trying to describe. Like, it's it's not horror per se, but it's not quite suspense. It's not quite mystery. It's Yeah, it's it's all of those things, but none of those things in the way that we're used to. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a bunch of kids getting involved in something over their head, which would lead you to believe in one kind of fiction, but it's not that kind. Yeah. Uh, it's horrifying monsters coming out of nowhere which is another kind of fiction but it's not that kind of fiction either uh, it's investigation into a government conspiracy which is one kind of thing but it's not really that kind of thing either it's it's crazy and and it's and it's amazing yeah. uh, and I can't stand anything that's kind of goes for fear as the emotion it's looking to evoke mm-hmm. and stranger things definitely is doing that in a bunch of episodes yeah yeah and and I binge watched it like yeah you know uh, I still don't have quite the ability to binge watch yet with like a one year old, but I, I I just don't sleep. That's the solution. I have considered that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 really 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 good. Yeah. And Netflix, of course, is saying, yeah, we're going to release a second season because we'd be idiots not to. Mm-hmm. Um, and going back to the RPG angle, so we should explain a little bit for people who haven't seen this yet. Yeah, why so the, this is yeah the almost opening scene. So. Enough of enough of the big thing so that the scene just before it everybody forgets. But the almost yep. opening scene is a couple of kids playing D D, getting to the big bad monster and choosing how to roll, you know, one thing or the other thing or whatever, and it kind of just leads into the show. Uh, and that and scene reverberates like that. That scene establishes a lot about the characters, and I, from the look on your face, I'm assuming a lot even beyond that that I I don't know about yet. There, there are there are, is at least one more D and D scene that yeah. has similar uh, echoes of of awesomeness. And uh, so the interesting thing here uh, on Facebook, I found this post by uh, Frank Menser. I think it's Frank. I'm pretty sure it's Frank uh, who edited the version of D&D that they're playing uh, because uh, in addition to this the cast apparently was playing D&D on set and everything they, they the well yeah you got all the materials they had to find all, they, they I, oh man I can't remember if they used actual books or if they got copies of books and wore them down 
Um, I think that they got copies because the originals were, you just don't want to mess with. Yeah, you don't want to mess with uh, a copy of Menser if you can get it. But Frank Menser on Facebook uh, started posting these messages like, does anybody know the folks who made this? Can you get me in contact with them? <laughs> and eventually like, posted publicly on the Duffer Brothers, the guys who... Uh, producers, were, yeah. Producers. Um, I think they did some writing. And writers, yeah. yes. They're clearly D&D fans, given how much D&D runs through that. And, and it's a wonderfully accurate portrayal. I love that about it. Uh, but Frank Mitzer was like, two things. First of all, I'd be happy to uh, run games for you. And second of all, I'd love to appear on it just as like an Easter egg cameo. cameo for everybody. Uh, and then he ended it with, oh, I should have written it down so I could read it exactly. But something <laughs> to the effect of like, I'm not looking to be paid for any of these things. I'm just an old man who enjoys games or something like that. <laughs> I was like, that is uh, that is the epitome of what I think of with early D&D players all old now. Uh, but... Yeah, your point to it being the second scene is hilarious because I was sold on it by people telling me, just watch the first scene, you'll love it. <laughs> and I watched the first scene, the first scene is utterly forgettable, but now I won't forget it because I was sitting there thinking, why would somebody think that I like this scene? <laughs> this is so bizarre. Like, what about this made them think that I would like it? And then it like does the credits and cuts to some kids playing D&D, and I'm like, yeah. oh, this is what they meant. But, but you know, the, the, the Duffer Brothers' geniuses, they know they can't cold open on D&D because they yeah. lose most of their Netflix audience. Yeah, and they, they called open on something that, while utterly forgettable for us compared to the rest of it, is, like, uh, attention-grabbing. It asks a bunch of questions, yeah. and then you go, well, what the heck is this? And you watch it a little bit more. I, and I love the there's an incongruity between that first, like, grabbing you with some questions in a... I mean, it's the first scene, so we can probably talk about it in more detail. It's a, a guy running down a hallway, apparently away from something, with like flickering lights and stuff, like, and creepy music in the background. Creepy music, like it's like, oh, this is going to be a thriller. Yeah, that that is what this scene says. And then you cut to D and D, and you're like, what? Yeah, you cut to kids playing D and D, uh, and they keep on referring to it as the Demogorgon, but it should be just Demogorgon. This this drives me crazy. It is the one. No, 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 because it's. For them, it's the de- because they've heard about the Demogorgon all the way through the campaign, and yeah. then they get to the Demogorgon. I, and in some ways, that is the most authentic. Like everybody comes up with their own things where they've decided. Like it's a good thing they didn't run into the Terrask because everybody would pronounce it differently. Exactly. It, it is kind of very authentic that they happen to refer to it as the Demogorgon. Also, heads up, Stranger Things guys, if the die hits the ta- hits the ground, you don't play it. <laughs> You're not allowed to play the die that hits the grass. But that's perfect for kids. Seven doesn't count, man. I love that the kids, like, they, they're playing, <laughs> but it's not quite right, and it doesn't feel like... It, it's even better than that episode of Community. And totally. that they're... They just seem into it. Those kids are also really good actors. I think that's part of why the series works. Somehow they got really good kid actors. Yeah, that's um, true. But yeah, you're only on you're only on the two. Yeah, so it just ended with uh, the miniatures being kind of important again. Um, okay. Yeah. They don't they don't make like there's pieces of it that that carry through the entire thing, but it's not it's not as big as in the first couple. Yeah, and that's uh, I think that's interesting because so many people I know fixate on those aspects and then mention that like actually this is a small part of an otherwise very good series. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love it that like D&D can be in there and it's not a focus, uh, but it just feels right and it feels it feels like when you're kids and you're having a good time playing D&D. It's totally, yeah, I love it. And it, it ties into this whole streaming and reporting and kind of this quiet, it doesn't feel like it has to be a big deal, but it's kind of everywhere. Uh, I, I love this feeling that just there's 
more gaming, more places, and it doesn't have to be a big deal. It doesn't have to be distinct from video gaming. Um, right. Oh. It's its own thing. So, what games are you looking forward to before we all sign off? Yeah, I guess things we missed are things to look forward to. Um, huh. That's a good question. Um, I actually just got my copy of the Burning Mill Codex, so I'm looking forward to digging through that. Um, and going and yelling at Luke to sign it. or uh, yeah, 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 Luke to sign it. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I just got my copy of Epilion. Uh, the dragon one, yeah. The dragon one. Um, which I'm, I'm curious to see kind of where it lands. Uh, honestly, I, I know some of the folks behind it, so I've kind of auto-backed it and only skimmed some of the description. And I'm not sure if I actually understand what it's going to be. So I'm kind of excited to open this up and find out. I am... It was one of the... So I only back Kickstarter for two reasons. Uh, I back them if they have some kind of reward that I'm like, oh, I'm going to hit myself if I didn't get this reward. Or I back them if I really don't care if the thing comes out, but I want to support anybody who has such a cool idea. Mm-hmm. And this was in the second category. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up just getting the PDF, but it's it's a really cool concept. So hopefully it's playable. Yeah, hopefully. Um, oh, man, a lot of the things that I think of as looking forward to are things that actually... Uh, have come out and I just haven't got to yet. So also, um, I've only got partway through Space Worm versus Moonicorn, which is this ridiculous, like, imagine a, a soft cover uh, sci-fi book from, like, the 70s that you find in the back of some used bookstore awesome. with kind of, like, the oversaturated art and stuff. Uh, it's that based on Dungeon World, basically, uh, from Johnstone Metzger. Um and I love the presentation. Like, Johnstone does his own layout and has learned a lot, and he deliberately went kind of, like, over-colorful and oversaturated, and it feels right. Uh, and plus, just, like, the over-the-topness of it is great. Um, I guess things that are actually, like, still forthcoming that I'm looking forward to. Uh, the new Paranoia. I'm always a huge fan of Paranoia. I've thought about, like, making basically a new Paranoia, but with, you know, a different name myself, so I'm excited to see what they do with it. It's had a bit of an interesting development process, so... Yeah. yeah. Um, Apocalypse World Second Edition, very excited about uh, just because I want to see. I feel like it being Vincent, he's going to sneak in something that I think is small, but which <laughs> it's turns actually out to be a big. huge, big, big deal. The first time I read Fronts, I was like, this is just telling me to think about things and write them down. Why would I care? And I feel like he might slip in something similarly, like on first read, I think that this is no big deal and everybody proves me wrong. Mm-hmm. Um,. Oh, I'm trying to think of other... Uh, oh, Prince Valiant. So, oh, yeah. I guess I, I have a conflict of interest here. I'm doing, this, this. I'm doing a stretch goal for it, but uh, I loved that comic as a kid. Um, and bringing back this classic storytelling game, role-playing game, like, it, it, let's call it role-playing game because I hate trying to draw lines there, but, like, totally. it, it's not necessarily traditional in a lot of things we think of. Um I'm super excited, and I'm excited to get to contribute to it. Uh, I'm a little worried, like, I'm excited that I'm contributing, but I, I'm a little cautious these days with any Kickstarter where basically the stretch goals are keeping on getting more people to make more things, oh, yeah. uh, but I'm still really excited about it. Have you played Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition? I have not yet. Okay, so talking about kind of Cthulhu-esque stuff, Mansions of Madness, uh, board game by Fantasy Flight. I can't remember the designer offhand, which makes me feel bad. Mm. Um, but they moved the GM effectively role into an app. Oh, I did not know that. Which is super good. Uh-huh. Uh, so it randomly generates... Like, the, the horrible thing about the original one was the GM had to do this big house setup, 
and setup took a while. Mm -hmm. And if you got a piece of it wrong and you didn't realize it, halfway through this three-hour game, it would break and you'd just be done. Mm -hmm. So the app taking care of everything means that you get way more discovery of the house. You get a bunch more clues that are just worrying enough. You get hidden uh, kind of victory conditions and craziness. And it's a beautiful game on top of that. So sometime I'll bring it in. And I've only played it once, so it's kind of also a looking forward to the non-intro. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to playing that. I've heard enough about it and some of the folks involved that uh, I would be super excited. Uh, also looking forward to Seafall. Yeah. My copy isn't here yet, but uh, I pre-ordered that one so that I could get the fancy coins. But the intro game is supposed to be bad. Yep. So the, the problem with Seafall, Seafall's a legacy game by Rob Davia. So another board game that changes over time. And this is the first one that's not built on an existing property. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that Seafall, the full game, is a serious heavy Euro, is what I've heard. Mm -hmm. But you can't introduce a serious heavy Euro from scratch and then change all the rules because you'd give everybody you, everybody's heads would explode so so Davio has this kind of prelude game which by all accounts is not very good uh, but it, it kind of introduces you to mechanics and then you continue playing uh, so I'm, I'm a little worried about that piece but I'm, I'm still excited I'm a little excited. worried but I'm excited for a legacy game because uh, we, we played through Risk Legacy together, and right. that was fantastic. And then we tried Pandemic Legacy, and it's actually still incomplete, because that one did not really click for us. Right, but I mean, we are definitely in the minority for Pandemic I Legacy. I know, uh, and I try and yell at the majority. They're, they're all wrong. But, yeah. Uh, so I'm excited to have another Legacy game, and I'm actually excited that it's not based on another existing game. And, and that it's the, about exploration. Exploration. Yeah. That's a perfect thing for legacy, basically. It's a little bit like No Man's Sky in the... When you combine exploration with permanent effects, especially permanent naming effects, like, it's great to feel like this is... This is mine. Um, we could have an hour-long discussion just about No Man's Sky, but maybe, yes. maybe we'll hold that. Uh, <laughs> I'm also looking forward to Shinobi Gami, yeah. uh, which is uh, Andy Kataski's kind of new thing he's bringing over from Japan. Hopefully, extremely soon, because all of the previews that I've been watching made me really want to bring it out uh, with people. And then Coriolis just got kickstarted, yep. so I'm curious about that. Uh, I'm looking forward to a bunch of things of my own that I'm trying to, after this <laughs> kind of like year long hiatus of not doing stuff, I got super jealous of people being at Gen Con and decided, hey, I want to make stuff so that I have an excuse to go to Gen Con because I have a new book. Yes. Uh, so. Hopefully, I will have some stuff to show people soon. Um, I'm having to, having to rediscover how to actually like write a complete game, like just the process of it. Uh, like I, I kept on trying to just kind of start from the beginning and write a game, and that's not a great way to write a game. So I started doing smart things like outlining the entire thing. Like that makes an amazing difference. If you ever um, figure it out, you have to tell everybody else. <laughs> I figured out a better way to do it than start at the beginning and keep on writing until you get to the end. Uh, Good times, which is a pretty low bar. Um, Oh man, I did not prepare more about which games, but you know that'll probably be uh, something to save for the end of our second season. Is another what to look forward to. Oh, totally. Um, and of course, we're always throwing in things to look forward to. So, I'm sure the next time we record, we'll have more things to look forward to uh, and more questions. Awesome. Uh, and you know, keep in touch on Twitter at AQ Podcast, and I think we're still on G Plus because that's still a thing. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, we're going to try and get back into regular episodes. So exciting times for everybody. Yeah, we'll be back soon with more another question.